المسلم من سلم المسلمون من لسانه ويده A true Muslim is he who protects other Muslims from his tongue and his hands. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the Day of Judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit in wrongdoing, transgression, disobedience, and vice, is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent. To the one moment of the repentance, that melts the heart. He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. What is Ahmadiyyat 101? Ahmadiyyat 101 is a brand new series explaining the beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in a simple, easy to understand format. These videos are for everyone, whether you are a fellow Ahmadi or just here to fulfill your curiosity. This is your platform to learn and find out more. This series is exclusive to MTA Online One, the official YouTube channel of MTA International. So, Subscribe and turn on your notifications so you don't miss a single video. Post your questions in the comment section and we will answer them in future videos. This is Ahmadiyyat 101, making Islam Ahmadiyyat simple. of Islam Radio. Auzubillahi minash-shaitanir-rajim. Bismillahir-rahmanir-rahim. In the name of Allah the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday the 4th of July 2022. The time is 7:05 a.m. and you're listening to your host Daniel Zia live from the Mm, South London studios of Voice of Islam. 
Uh, as is the norm in this show, we shall be covering two topics uh, today. The first topic, which we shall start around 7.25 a.m. today, uh, God willing, will be around the um, the participation of women of color in the workplace. And then um, around um, 8, 10 or 8, 15 a.m. or so, we shall start discussion on the second topic, which is what is the right response to blasphemy? So that is um, another uh, issue that... Uh, is hotly discussed and debated uh, both in the West and uh, in the Muslim world. Um, so we shall uh, delve into detail of that and present the true Islamic belief around the right response uh, to blasphemy. Please do stay tuned um, uh, for these two topics and join us in these discussions, these two very important discussions, by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right, so uh, let me start um, uh, by uh, start this segment by talking about what is appearing in the newspapers um, today. So several papers continue to lead on the fallout from the allegations facing former Conservative MP Chris Pincher and Downing Street's handling of the claims. A new poll from the I shows Boris Johnson's approval rating has taken a hit, with nearly half of respondents saying he makes the Conservative Party less appealing. The paper says it has been told by party rebels that the Prime Minister's handling of sexual misconduct claims against the former Deputy Chief Whit could lead to more MPs backing a rule change to bring forward a no-confidence vote in the Tory leader. Striking a similar note, the Times says the events of recent days have bolstered Tory rebels' hopes of ousting Mr Johnson as Prime Minister. Critics of the Prime Minister have told the paper that events over the past few days mean he is more likely to lose support within the 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenchers. A so-called rebel ringleader told the paper, it has certainly sharpened minds to act because it all goes back to the Prime Minister. It's not just backbench MPs who have been angered by Number 10's handling of the claims. The Daily Telegraph says the appointment of Mr. Pincher as Deputy Chief Whip in February has also frustrated some ministers, according to the paper. The paper says it has spoken to sources close to three cabinet ministers who criticised the decision to appoint him and expressed dismay at having to face public questions about what Mr. Johnson knew at the time. One cabinet source told the paper that defending the Prime Minister's handling of the allegations against Mr. Pincher was soul-destroying. One minister who was doing the media rounds on Sunday was work and pension secretary Theresa Coffey. Metro leads uh, with Ms. Coffey's comments that Mr. Johnson was not aware of specific allegations against Mr. Pincher in February when he was made Deputy Chief Whip. Mr. Pincher, who was suspended as Conservative MP last week over claims he groped two men, now faces new allegations of inappropriate behaviour stretching back several years. He has denied the claims. You don't know what decent is, reads the headline dominating the front of the Daily Mirror as the paper leads on Labour's criticisms of 
Mr. Johnson's handling of the situation. Labour chairwoman Annalise Dodds has written a scathing letter to the Prime Minister. The paper, the paper reports in it, she says the British people deserve to know why Mr. Pincher was appointed and whether you or your team were aware of the allegations. In other news, The Guardian carries a report which says that half of 3.1 million children in single-parent families are now living in relative poverty, citing research from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. The research shows how a decade of austerity-driven cuts to benefits has hit single parents especially hard, the paper adds. More than 22,000 people suspected to have committed a crime are roaming free after falling to appear in court, according to the Daily Mail. Alleged uh, alleged offences include murder, rape and other violent acts, the paper says. The police are too stretched to arrest them. One former minister said the paper's finding lay bare how shambolic our justice system has become. And uh, finally, um, the Daily Express says that house buyers are facing a four-month wait for purchases to go through, calling it a broken system. The paper, the paper says that red tape and a lack of legal staff are leading factors in the delays. A typical sale is taking 133 days from an offer being accepted to completion, according to the paper. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers uh, this morning. A reminder of the two topics that we shall be covering today. So the first topic is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. And the second topic is about the right response to blasphemy. What is the correct way of responding to to blasphemy uh, or blasphemous allegations or blasphemous statements, whatever it is that you might consider blasphemous? So a hot topic um, uh, in the West as, um, as well as in the Islamic world, and we shall delve deep into that topic to answer some of the burning questions and try and present the true Islamic perspective on that. So those are the topics. The number to call to participate in those discussions is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we shall continue to talk about some more news appearing in the newspapers today, and then we shall start discussion on the first topic, which is about the participation of women in the workplace at 7.25. Please do stay tuned. of Islam Radio. Nahmadullah al 
Hazrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam in its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Your interpretation of jihad has always been in stark contrast to the extremist imams that we all deplore. We especially applaud His Holiness for denouncing those who pervert faith by claiming it as a justification for violence. However we define God, it is wrong to kill in His name. I have enormous admiration and respect for the work that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community are doing throughout the world to promote peace and understanding, not just by words, but by an example of a way of life, an example of impeccable conduct, and an example of undeniable faith in God Almighty, and an example of peace and tolerance. I only wish that more people could be here today to see this face of Islam, to understand this community's expression of that great religion, and I hope that for the future you will be recognized as the face of Islam, of love, of tolerance, of brotherhood and friendship. The work that you do in the community contributes every day towards that. Let us hope that everyone else's eyes are opened to the truth, to the justice and to the compassion that you bring to our society. His Holiness, Hazret Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa, discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. 
the Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. It is a pleasure to be associated with an organization, with a religion that says love for all, hate for none. And I think if you reflect on that, really that is what we all ought to be doing in the world today. The Ahmadiyya movement in Islam has been a leader in promoting peace and partnership between communities. Established in 190 countries, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community continues to preach a message of peace and tolerance even in parts of the world that persecute them for their beliefs. But this should, ladies and gentlemen, come as a surprise to no one, to anyone who knows this community. Ahmadis are renowned throughout the world for their devotion to peace, universal brotherhood, and the will of God, the core principles of true Islam. Uh, all of us, whatever our political persuasions, hugely admire the work of the Ahmadiyya community here in the United Kingdom as we do across the world. And you are also a beacon because you teach all of us that we will find the solutions to the problems of today through a rediscovery of the spiritual side of our lives as well as the material side. Let us make a resolution. Let us make this resolution to promote the message of peace and brotherhood, which is your message to mankind, that people of different religions should not quarrel and fight with each other, but should accept and tolerate and live together in that spirit of brotherhood and peace, which is the essence of your religion. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Azawallah min ash-shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. Before we went on to the break, we were talking about the news appearing um, in the newspapers today, and we shall continue that discussion for the next few minutes. Um, a reminder of the two topics that we shall be talking about today. The first topic um, is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. Um, and the second topic is the right, the correct the appropriate response to blasphemy according to Islamic teachings. So those are the two uh, important topics that we shall be talking about today. Please do join us in uh, both these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. Um, it's something that caught my eye this morning um, is a piece written in The Guardian by Richard Partington, who is their economics correspondent. 
uh, and, he, and he talks about that um, about the fact that half of all children in lone parent families are now living in relative poverty. This according to an exclusive research that shows how a decade of austerity-driven cuts to benefits has left single parents among the most exposed to soaring inflation. In the first of a series of reports from the frontline uh, of the cost of living crisis, The Guardian reports today on the impact of cuts to state support by successive conservative governments which have left women raising their children alone in a much weaker position to cope with the shocks of the pandemic and rising prices of basics such as food and heating. The vast majority of 1.8 million lone parent families in Britain, almost 9 um, out of 10 are headed by women. Together, they are raising 3.1 million children, more than a fifth of all children. Research shared exclusively with The Guardian by the Institute for Fiscal Studies sets out the scale of the crisis. It shows relative poverty for children in lone parent families has risen at a significantly faster rate compared with other households. Relative poverty is defined as having an income of less than 60% of the national medium adjusted for household size. For single parents, this measure of poverty rose by 9 percentage points between 2013 and 2020 to reach 49% at the onset of the global health emergency. In sharp contrast, the rate for children in two-parent families rose by only 2 percentage points to reach 25%. Tony Blair, the former Labour Prime Minister, warned that a painful cost-of-living squeeze was hitting families and that progress in tackling child poverty was severely undermined by sweeping benefit cuts imposed over the past decade. Eradicating child poverty by 2020 had been a key commitment made by Blair during his first term in the government at the turn of the millennium. However, the study from the IFS suggests progress was reversed under the Conservatives amid the post-2008 financial crisis and the austerity drive that emerged from it. The last Labour government made it a priority to shackle child poverty. Our policies revolutionised opportunities for loan parents for making work, pay loan parent employment rose and child poverty fell sharply as a result, Blair said. That legacy has been undermined over the past decade as a state as state benefits have been eroded. Growth has been weak and wages stagnant despite high employment rates for loan payments, uh, for loan parents rather. Figures from the charity Child Poverty Action Group shows there were 3.9 million children living in poverty in the UK last year, more than a quarter of all children um, or eight in a classroom of 30. Linking the growing divisions in the society with the decade of austerity imposed by conservative-led governments, the IFC said that the rise in poverty for children living in lone-parent households reflects reductions in the real value of state benefits in the years from 2011 to 2019. Among the cuts in support that have most affected, affected single mothers are the benefits cap, the four-year freeze in benefits between 2016 and 2020, the two-child limit and a lowering of the age of the youngest child when single parents must start looking for work. Before 2008, lone parents were able to claim income support until their youngest child reached 16 or 19 in full-time education after changes first introduced by the last Labour government and made substantially tougher by the Conservative-led coalition, this age limit 
was repeatedly cut. Now, single parents are expected to prepare for work when their youngest reaches one and then be in a job from the age of three. Absolutely, it increases child poverty, said Morag Trenner, the professor of child and family inequalities at the Harriet Watt University. Single parents don't have the security to build what is required to search for work until they get the children to school or proper childcare. It's very detrimental, it's distressing, and it has an impact on mothers as well as children. Right, and with that, we uh, conclude this first segment of um, uh, talking about current affairs and what uh, was appearing in the newspapers uh, this morning. Um, a reminder of the two topics. The first topic we shall start um, in a minute's time is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. And the second topic is about the right response to blasphemy. Please do stay tuned. We shall be back right after this very quick break to talk about the first topic, which is about the women of color and the workplace. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. The Contemporary Age. An age of reform and revolution. A time where the geopolitical outline of the world has transformed drastically within a scale of a few years. From the formation of countries and states to the continuous regime changes and revolts in the name of the establishment of democratic values, what are the principles upon which the basis of governance and socio-economics should be laid? Does Islam really have the answer to the economical unrest in the world? Read The Economic System of Islam by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed Razila Talanho, the promised reformer and the second successor of the promised Messiah, Alayhi You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show. From South London Studios of Voice of Islam, we're talking about the first topic, which is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. So the Runnymede Trust and Fawcett Society have released a research highlighting that at every stage of the career journey, from entering work to senior leadership, women of color are being locked out of reaching their true potential. This segment will look to explore the key findings, recommendations, and there is evidence to suggest that women of color are actually making progress. So the report by Runnymede Trust explores the various views and experiences of women of color in a workplace environment. The Trust has partnered up with Broken Ladders Centers to, to thoroughly research this matter and to voice the problems that thousands of women of color have to face at work. 
the outcome of the research displays that women of color do get locked out from reaching their full potential in their careers. The report conveys a range of statistics from the findings of the research conducted for this matter. So institutional racism, according to the sport, is common in all sectors and in all organizations. 75% of women of color have experienced, have experienced racism at work, with 27% having suffered racial slurs. Forced to mold to conform, 61% report changing themselves to fit, to fit in at work from the language or words they use. 37% said they had to change their hairstyles. And 26% um, said even their name. 39% of women of color stated their well-being had been impacted by a lack of progression compared to 28% of white women, whilst being refused promotion led to loss of motivation for 43% of women of color. 28% of women of color compared with 19% of white women reported that a manager had blocked their progression at work and 42% reported being passed over for promotion despite good feedback. 52% um, of women of color experienced discrimination such as being asked for UK qualifications or English as a first language and being asked for ethnicity information outside of the monitoring progress. And to talk more about this, uh, we are now joined by Zemel Azad, who is a senior campaigns officer at Fawcett Society. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, Zemel, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, can you hear me properly? Excellent, I can hear you now. Brilliant. Great. Great. Right. Okay. So uh, let me uh, start by asking you uh, uh, about the Fawcett Society. Uh, please tell us more. Yeah, thank you. So the Fawcett Society is the UK's leading gender equality charity, and we campaign for women's rights at home, at work, and in public life. Um, and it's very much about, um, you know, what we do is about ensuring that women in all of our diversity are able to um, be free to, um, you know, fulfill uh, their potential in every aspect of life. Um, and Broken Ladders, which is the report that you've just been talking about, uh, we worked on that with the Runnymede Trust, which is a race equality charity. Um, and it's the biggest representative study of women of colour's experiences at work in the UK. Right. So um, it, we were talking about the key findings that, gave, uh, that came from the uh, report uh, Broken Ladders. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, so our research has shown what uh, women of colour across the UK already know, which is that experiencing completely unacceptable racism at work um, is the norm for quite a lot of women of colour. So our report finds that 75% of women of colour have experienced racism at work, um, and that includes over a quarter having experienced racial slurs. Um, now, that's an unacceptably high figure. It means that, you know, and the majority of women of colour in workplaces across the UK, uh, and this is, you know, we're not talking about a particular sector, we're not talking about a particular size of an organisation, across the UK in organizations of all kinds, in all sectors, of, of all sizes. So we know that this is happening. Uh, the other thing that the research finds is that women of color are having to change who they are 
in order to feel like they fit in the workplace. So that includes, um, you know, women having to change things like um, what they what they wear, so the clothes they're wearing, um, uh, their hair, the food that they might eat, the things that they talk about, um, and even their name. Um, so again, I think it just really tells us something about the cultures of our workplaces um, that women of color are feeling like that they can't be themselves at work. Right. So um, I guess that begs the question, why is it important to talk about uh, this? Why is it important to talk about this report? Why is it important to talk about, to highlight uh, the workplace racism for women of color? Um, so I think for several reasons. The first, the first is that, um, you know, women of color have huge amounts of talent. Women of color, what our research is telling is that women of color want to progress. They have the ambition, you know, they, um, mm. they are telling their managers that they want to progress. They're doing all of the things um, that they're told that they're meant to do, but that they're still not reaching the top positions, which means that, you know, those women are losing out, but also those businesses are losing out. These organizations are losing out um, because we're not creating environments in which people can fulfill their potential. We're not creating environments where women um, who are, you know, hugely talented, who have huge amount to give, are not being able to do that. It's also taking a, a huge toll on the mental health of these women. It's, you know, um, what's, co- what's come out quite clearly in our research is that a women's well-being is being affected, their confidence is being affected, um, you know, they're having to leave those workplaces, they're having to leave those organizations. Um, so businesses are losing out, women are losing out, and society is losing out. So we talk a lot, I think, at the moment about, you know, both trying to um, create workplaces that are based on merit, where people who are, uh, you know, who, who are the best at what they do can progress. Our report really clearly shows that that's not happening. That mm. something needs to change quite urgently. Mm. Um, let me ask uh, my next question from a slightly different angle, uh, Zemel. Um and that's uh, an angle that's usually thrown um, uh, at the Muslim community here in uh, in Britain, which is about you know integration or um, or, or lack of integration. Yeah. Um, so my question is that when we say that uh, you know, and this report highlights that women of color feel that they need to change themselves to fit into the workplace, yeah. uh, fitting into in inverted commas. Um, you know, being the devil's advocate, uh, why is that not? What's wrong with that? Uh, isn't that integration in in the workplace? As you know, somebody would say to um, to a Muslim member of society that you need to integrate. I think integration is well, that's that's the you know, like you said, there's a lot of conversation about integration, hmm. but what does that actually mean? That if if that means having to change who you are. What mm. our research is telling us is that women mm. are you know, women are feeling like they can't be themselves. Right. And the other aspect of that is that they're having to put in a lot of work. They're having to put in a lot of additional labor. You know, all of the time and energy that they could be spending on the work, they're having to do that on top of doing their normal day job. So having to think constantly about what you're talking about, how you look, you know, whether you come across um, 
as, you know, a more aggressive or whether you're going to be perceived a certain way. Um, and actually, our research finds that women of, uh, that Muslim women are more likely to have to, um, you know, to ch- change aspects of themselves to fit in than women who are either um, of other religions, of no religion. So this is something that Muslim women are experiencing specially. Um, and I think you've really picked up on something in terms of the pressure that's being mm. placed on the Muslim community to integrate you know, they're feeling that additional burden there. Mm-hmm. And they've said uh, in our interviews and in our focus groups, they've said that they've talked about how some of the perceptions that exist about the Muslim community make them feel like that they have to behave a certain way, so that they have to either, um, you know, um, uh, I guess, um, try to explain themselves or um, um, make those kind of, um, you know, those perceptions that potentially exist about Islam that they're having to try counter that. Um, so it's really interesting that this has this comes out more strongly for Muslim women in our research and I think what you've said is, is a really key part of that. Mm. I mean, what are the effects of racism in the workplace and is there anything that women of colour are losing out on because of this? Well, first of all, women of colour aren't progressing. So, you know, one of the one of the main reasons we carried out this research was that was because we know that uh, women of colour in the workplace are, um, you know, almost missing from top positions. So, so they're hugely underrepresented. Um, if you look at across the board uh, in, you know, FTSE 100 companies, for example, in the UK, there are no women of colour who are CEOs. Um, so all across the UK, in, in most sectors, um, women of colour are really underrepresented. So they're not getting the promotions that they should be getting. Uh, you know, the pay gap for women of colour is much higher than it is for white women. Women of colour are earning less as well. Um, so those are some of the really, I guess, um, economical and uh, really visible aspects of what women of colour are losing out. But then they're losing, you know, they're losing time, they're losing energy because they're having to uh, fight racism that they because they're having to think about um, how they can mould themselves to fit, you know, what other people's expectations are of what they should be behaving like and that's impacting on their well-being and confidence so over 75 percent of women uh, that we surveyed said that their well-being was being affected by the racism at work and 39 percent said and that they felt like that their confidence and how they were feeling about work was being affected by the lack of progression and so this is having an impact on their mental health it's having an impact on their physical health it means that they're not being able you know they're not fulfilling their potential so uh, it's huge what they're ha- they're you know what they're having to take because of this hmm. and and what actions do you think need to be taken now to to address the workplace racism experienced by women of color so what we need is for government and employers to work together on this, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be really difficult things. It can be simple things. But one of the things we're asking government to do is um, legislate to ban salary history questions, which are questions that um, people are asked at the time of interview sometimes about what they were earning in their previous job. And that can push um, uh, pays down. And that has that especially makes a difference to um people you know, from minoritized communities like women of color and that's a really simple thing so um, you know the government we're asking the government to ban those kind of questions we're asking businesses and employers to have um, effective and evidence that led anti-racism action plans which have really clear targets that they can monitor against uh, you know having clear and transparent routes for reporting racism so that everybody in an organi- organization knows how 
to report racism, but also so that the burden of that isn't always on those women of color. You know, the responsibility of tackling racism needs to be on those employers, on those organizations, rather than on women of color. We're already having to do quite a lot of work, uh, you know, in, in facing and tackling that racism um, and ensuring that they can be equitable promotion outcomes for all employees. And again, you know, it can be simple things. It doesn't have to be really complicated. It's things like making sure your progression routes in an organization are clear. You know, how are promotion decisions made in an organization? and How is that communicated? It's making sure that managers have the right training in place uh, to be able to carry out appraisals. Now, good managers make a really big difference. And a lot of these experiences are happening at that level of an organization. Um, it's making sure that uh, you know leadership can talk about racism. These things aren't just brushed under the carpet. That some of these difficult conversations are happening, um, and you know we've got a whole set of um, recommendations for both employers and government uh, that look at all aspects of this. Um, and they don't have to be costly. They don't have to be complicated. It's a lot of this is about uh, that willingness from employers to tackle this. Definitely, definitely. There should be that willingness, like you said, and and the blame and the onus shouldn't be on, on employees, um, but it should be on the employer and uh, and of course the, uh, the industry itself, the system above them that needs uh, that, that that we need to see a change in. Zaymal, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you on the breakfast show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And let's go straight on to our next guest, uh, who is the Right Honourable Caroline Noakes, uh, MP, Member of Parliament for Romsey and Southampton North and Chair for the Women and Equalities Select Committee. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and thank you for having me on this morning. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, for joining us. Uh, really a pleasure to speak to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you, you would have heard the uh, the conversation that um, uh, that we are having this morning about uh, you know the women of color and their uh, lack of participation and the challenges that they actually face in the workplace what is the women and equality select committee doing about that well there's a range of initiatives that we have been looking at over the course of this parliament um, and first and foremost we looked at the impact that COVID had on women's employment prospects and the gendered impact of COVID. And we are very conscious that it is not just uh, women who are impacted, but particularly women from minoritized communities who were often working in uh, frontline employment, like in the healthcare system. Uh, we're currently undertaking uh, an inquiry into discrimination in the asylum system and how that is particularly impacting women and of course we have long been calling for uh, ethnicity pay gap reporting to be done in the same way that we have gender pay gap reporting because it is very clear that whilst there are some leading uh, companies want very much to be able to report ethnicity pay gaps because if you don't measure it then you won't make any change uh, but we want a framework from government so that companies can understand how they can best report and, and in fact, what they can do to, to close that gap uh, as opposed to letting it perpetuate. Karen, in this in this segment, we we were discussing a recent report by Runnymede Trust and Fawcett Society, Broken Ladders, which looks into women and workplace racism. How How important is it to highlight workplace racism faced by women? 
Oh, well, of course, it's critically important. And I think it is absolutely imperative that, as your previous uh, caller was outlined here, you have to have a framework where government and business work hand in hand together. And it is not just... Uh, it's not just big business where there can be a problem. We know that in uh, public sector organisations, there can still be problems with uh, people being racially discriminated against. Yeah. I think what we saw during COVID was, uh, particularly with the availability of PPE, uh, we were very conscious as a committee that we were hearing evidence from uh, black uh, and Asian women who were working in the health service that the uh, the protective equipment that they were provided with was not uh, was not designed for their uh, either their size or their facial features. We all know that masks were designed uh, with a uh, a Caucasian man in mind. So in many instances they were too big. They were made for a very square, masculine jaw. And the thing that worried me, as uh, the chair of the select committee committed to working on equalities, was that we were hearing from too many people that they were afraid to ask for better PPE. They were afraid to draw attention to the fact. Uh, that they needed different equipment. Now, look, in the 21st century, that really must not be the case. I'm not going to say should not be the case. must not be the case that our own health service is not responding to its employees' needs adequately. And there is clearly still an enormous piece of work to be done to make sure that uh, minoritized communities, but particularly women, are not discriminated. Because we know that the challenges of intersectionality and how uh, you will be discriminated against if you're a woman, you'll be discriminated against if you are from a minoritized community, you'll be discriminated against if you're disabled. Yet when those are all rolled together, you end up with a, a perfect storm where there are some parts of our communities who are hugely disadvantaged in the workplace. Mm. Right. Um Karen, the, um there is uh, this report in The Guardian uh, this morning, um, and that's about um, uh, single-parent families. And uh, The Guardian reports that um, half of children in lone-parent families are in relative poverty, um, uh, and that has exacerbated over the last uh, decade or so, especially because of the austerity uh, drive. Um, and this is from a study conducted by the Institute of uh, Fiscal Studies. My question to you is, so, you know, uh, there is that, and, and 90% of these uh, lone parent families are headed by uh, women. So you have that issue, and then you have the the workplace uh, inequality issue. And if I can add, uh, uh, you know, a third uh, aspect, which is... Um, especially for for Muslim women. You know, there is this uh, this Islamophobia as well. So there's a triple whammy, or, or at least a double whammy for most of women of color. That's a pretty dire situation, isn't it? Well, look, I've not seen the particular study to which you're referring, and I apologize no, for that this morning. But I think there are challenges, particularly for lone parent families. We know that, is that many... Many of our systems are set up, sort of predicated on there being two parents around, uh, enabling there to be a sharing of finances and a sharing of responsibilities. And I think particularly, and I, uh, in Parliament, not only am I chair of the APTG for Muslim women, but I'm also a member of the all-party group for uh, single parents. And I'm very conscious that there, particularly when it comes to uh, issues around childcare, that we have to look at the support that's given that will enable 
uh, individuals to, to be able to play a, a fuller role in the workplace, maybe to work more hours, which can only be done if there is support for childcare. Do you think enough is being done? Oh, look, I think uh, we're in really challenging times. I would like to see the benefit system giving more support. I think it is uh, hugely worrying at the present time that we mm. see so many people, so many families reliant on food banks. Uh, and we're in a time where we have record levels of employment. So it's actually mm. people are suffering who are in work. Exactly. And that we have to work out through the Department mm. of Work and Pensions as to how the systems can better support people into uh, into better work, how the benefit system can work more closely with employment so that there aren't these cliff edges where people feel that they will be disadvantaged if they do take on more hours. But I think that the key thing, and I'm hugely concerned about this at the moment, is around childcare. We have mm, one of the most mm. un- unaffordable, expensive childcare systems in the entire world. But you hear from childcare providers that they're struggling to make ends meet, they're struggling uh, to be able to provide the service at the levels that they are uh, being reimbursed by the government. And you have to look at the review that has started. I think today there's been a consultation open into how the government can better uh, support the childcare sector and how we can better help parents. But this is, I think this is one of the huge problems. When parents look at uh, the cost of childcare and, and think, consider, well, actually, I'll be worse off in work with my childcare costs, mm. then clearly that's a, a, an unsustainable position and we have to work out how we can solve that conundrum. Right. So, you know, we have all of these challenges that you that you are outlining as well. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, you know, the government, the chancellor says that, uh, you know, he ha- he's, uh, he's having challenges balancing the books. So where do we go from here? Well, I think that's the the big problem that the Chancellor has at the moment, isn't it? That we have to balance the books. We have spent uh, an incredible amount of money supporting people through COVID. The furlough scheme, as we know, did a a brilliant job of keeping incomes going into households. We saw the the business interruption uh, funding. We saw the the grants for the self-employed. Look, these were all very expensive. Now, on top of that, we have a, a crisis in the cost of living, rising fuel prices, the war in Ukraine. Uh, so I do not envy the Chancellor his job. But the flip of that is the minute people see taxes rising, uh, there's a great deal of uh, discomfort at that. And I was pleased to see uh, the announcement, I think it was maybe last month, around how the government seeks to uh, make sure that the energy companies are paying more to help people, help families address the cost of living crisis. But we're not really seeing the, the huge impact of that yet. We see it at the petrol pump, but of course it's, it's the summer now. We're expecting a heat wave, so everybody has their heating turned off. In October, when we see the energy price cap lifted again, uh, and we all turn our heating on, that will be a real crunch point for the government. Mm. And I do think it's imperative that the Chancellor comes forward with plans that demonstrate how they are going to tackle that through this coming winter um, because we want families to be able to be in a position where they can uh, they can afford their heating as well as being able to afford food and everything else that they need. So if you were to give a positive message to all the women listening to this show today, given all the challenges that you just described, what would that be? So my, my positive message would be that there is Uh, now far greater understanding of the issues that minoritised women are facing in the workplace. I want to see the government come forward with 
an employment bill that would uh, strengthen the workplace protections, and I will keep fighting for that. And it's my job. I'm not a member of the government. It is my duty to hold them to account and my job to make sure that they're delivering on policy commitments. Uh, I desperately want to see an employment bill, but I think one of the positive messages that I can give is that we still have uh, an economy where there are lots of jobs available. Uh, Employment uh, is at a, a record high, and it's important that we make sure, and we recognize that uh, women are an important part of that employment market. The biggest growing uh, demographic in employment at the moment is women over the age of 50. Uh, and I think that that is a positive thing, that we are making sure that people are, are contributing uh, and supporting themselves longer in life, and that's absolutely crucial. But I think um, what I hope to see from the government is the courage to bring forward an employment bill that addresses issues around flexibility of working, that addresses issues around ethnicity pay gaps, and and looks to make sure what frameworks can be put in place to support more women into work and give them help and opportunities with retraining. Uh, we know that the retail sector, which is very heavily dominated by women, has been changed out of all recognition by COVID. And I think it's important that we, we work hand-in-hand uh, hand with the DWP to work out where the the retraining opportunities can can be found for those women. Hmm. Right, Honourable Caroline Knox, um, thank you very much for joining us. It uh, really was a pleasure to speak to you this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure indeed. Thank you very much. So that was the right Honourable Caroline Knox, MP who is uh, a Member of Parliament for, Rome, for Romsey and Southampton North and the Chair for the Women uh, and Equality Select Committee talking to us about what they're trying to do, what the um, uh, what help um, uh, the uh, the select committee itself is and how they're trying to hold the government accountable for many of the challenges that uh, the women face in the in the workplace um, Imam Khalid um, you know your thoughts on uh, on the discussion so far I mean it is obviously a very um, it's a very difficult situation especially mm. because of the fact that we are now in the what, the 21st century 2022 mm. And we're still finding such problems. Right. Whereas Islam had uh, advocated for the rights of women over fourteen hundred years ago, right. um, and that they they should be, um, and that in in all in all aspects of life they're equal. Mm. Um, no discrimination. Yeah. yeah, no discrimination at all. Mm. And um, this is. Um, Unfortunately, what we've seen is that where people blame Islam, that I mean, coming from this angle, that Islam is Islam treats women like this, or Islam has has done this, or Islam is backwards of society, for example. Mm. But this is the true teaching of Islam that they should be mm. uh, treated without any sort of discrimination. And um, yet, the reality is that you know the triple whammy that I talked about. Yeah. So uh, you know there is uh, this cost of living crisis. There is discrimination at work uh, for women of color in general, and then you know there is this additional uh, prospect of uh, facing Islamophobia. Yeah. If you're a woman and and trying to a Muslim woman and and trying to uh, make your place in the workplace. Yeah. And it's um, again, it's um, from more angles. You are being in a way you're feeling that suffocation. Mm. Um. Whereas again, I mean, Islam had um, had had given those 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 had laid those foundations of equality, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, which unfortunately this society uh, and most parts of this world really have not really um, been able to to implement the 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 fact that everyone is equal the fact that every every life is sacred right. um and that regardless of your color mm. if you are fit for the job you should be given the job yeah not that because your color isn't as common or yeah. you're you're not the let's say. and paid according to your potential paid yeah. according to your performance not according to your gender or your yeah. color yeah yeah 100% I mean we see that the I mean in the last sermon of the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he gave oh, he sorry. gave such um, I mean such basic but yet groundbreaking um, rules as you can say mm. uh, and guidances which to this day are still not being implemented mm. they're still not being acted upon and he stated and this was his last sermon over 1400 years ago and he oh. said oh people your lord is one you are the progeny of the same father who was created from dust hence it is not permissible for you to make any discrimination between high and low neither an arab has superiority over a non-arab nor a non-arab over an arab a white person is not superior to a black person nor a black person superior to a white the most honorable among you in the sight of god is the one who is the most righteous and then he further states that you are brothers and sisters you are all equal no matter to which nation or tribe you belong and no matter what your status is you are equal just as the fingers of both hands are alike nobody can claim to have any distinctive right or greatness over another the command which i give you today is not just today is not just for today but it is forever always remember to always remember this and to keep acting upon it until you return to your true master so i mean th- this I mean, as you said it's so groundbreaking i mean yeah look at this i mean 1400 years ago yeah. when you know most of the world was in dark ages yeah uh and you know this man rises and he uh, rises from a, from a desert in in Arabia and yeah. talks about these things which are not only relevant to the world today is so very relevant but but not even uh, you know being implemented yeah. so let's let's um, continue this discussion um we are coming to the um to the news break so uh, when we come back let's continue this discussion as to you know what what needs to be done to implement a more fair society so a lot more coming up on this topic after the news break the promised messiah peace be on him founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community in islam states sin which indeed is a poison is born when a man is wanting in obedience to god and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance the fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of god is like that of an uprooted tree no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil as such a tree gradually withers and dies so like the dryness of the tree sin overwhelms the heart the remedy for this state of dryness according to the law of nature is of three types number 1 love number 2 istighfar that is seeking forgiveness of allah it literally means a desire to bury or to cover reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil 
it can help to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is toba, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Toba cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Toba can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Toba. Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person He reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for Him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware he is of those who seek Him and raises prophets to be their guide to Him. His light is manifested through His prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most. For it was He who had the most perfect perception of God and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of His perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of His servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound it is He who fills hearts with His magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful 
for the mercy of Al-Latif. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from Southland Sudi's Voice of Islam. Today is Monday the 4th of July 2022 and you're listening to Dani Alsia and Imam Tahir Khalid live um, uh, from uh, the Southland Sudi's Voice of Islam. Um, the topic we are t- we're discussing today is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. And we have uh, spoken to a couple of guests uh, around that, a couple of uh, experts. We've also t- spoken to the um, member of parliament, uh, the head of the Women and Equality Select Committee, Right Honorable Caroline Oaks, uh, MP. Um, uh, Imam Khalid, the, so before we went on to the break, we were talking about, you know, what the, the society... Islam preaches the society Islam preached um, 1400 years ago uh, the society Islam uh, wants to build uh, and yet um, you know 1400 years later we are miles away from uh, from building that society so so the two questions that I have uh, you know somebody who's who's just joined in uh, might be wondering you know if, if Islam prescribed this um, uh, what you, what we've been talking about, equality and um, and good governance and whatnot, fourteen hundred years ago. Uh, why do we see um, women being exploited in 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 the Muslim world? And the other question is, um, you know, here in the West also, uh, if this is the the current state of situation, current state of affairs for women of color or women in general. Poverty is on the rise. Discrimination is is still there. Where do we go from here? I mean, I think it requires a, a reset in society. There needs to be a real reset. Not only just because mm. of, I mean, discrimination is not the only issue that we're facing. Mm. It's I mean, it it is one of the issues, but it's not the it's not one of the main problems that we're facing in today's society. Um, we, I mean, the the there are a number a number of issues, and that's why for for all of them to be given that same level, and, and of course, I mean this this issue that we're talking about today, discrimination in the workplace, uh, particularly for women of, of color, it is uh, of course a very uh, it's a serious issue, <clears throat> but um, it requires. Um, 
a reset like i said so that it can be looked mm. at looked at properly it can be so that we can we can look at how um where things have gone wrong and what needs to be done now to try and resolve it to be to be i mean it's all well and good to have appgs right but is there enough implementation be happening from the top yeah is exactly is the government taking that as well advice and yeah. is, is, the is, is it being taken seriously to, to exactly and right. until until like this the number of other issues that we're facing i mean we we spoke about the 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 issues with with um with um the lack of pay we we spoke about um the issues of um the um, living wages how I, we've spoken about how poverty is on the rise poverty yeah. is on the rise tax is on the rise mm. uh, the rich are getting richer the poor are getting poorer right. these are these are issues which affect i mean more or less everyone in society all the all the working class the lower class the middle class so But, i guess the discussion then comes back to uh, uh, to justice really and uh, to uh, to kindness and to uh, you know building a society based on kindness and justice and um uh, and equality and um uh, you you were t- uh, quoting uh, from the last sermon of um, the holy prophet of islam may peace and blessings of allah be upon him in which he talked about uh, those things so um, uh, just to close this discussion would you like to sort of uh, you know dilate or maybe even repeat some of that um, and then you know is there, is there anything that you can tell us that uh, the founder of the amdi muslim community who we consider to be the imam of this age um uh, has he said anything about uh, about um, uh, kindness or about justice or or, or in any of these things i mean we talk about justice um uh, and its role in society the, the, our current caliph has spoken about this in in a number of of uh, of speeches um i mean one which really comes to mind is um he spoke about this in in again in in many places but one speech he gave uh, in canada entitled justice in an unjust world um and in this he's covered a number of the issues that we we've discussed today as well um but particularly the 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 issues that our society is facing i mean um we've we've made we've made leaps and bounds um we've moved forward in leaps and bounds in technological advancements um every day there's new forms of modern technology um and scientific advancements are being developed um and that proves that our intelligence our minds are moving forward our productivity our levels of productivity productivity is increasing efficiency our personal comfort but it's a deep regret that humanity is uh, that when humanity is progressing at this race at, at this pace really it's also moving further apart and it's becoming increasingly divided there's a lack of peace and stability in the world um and, and we've seen in in some countries leaders and governments are failing to fulfill the rights of their people and are inflicting grave cruelties and injustices upon them um and that's why we have rebel groups coming up um um people rising up in opposition um to to oppose these 
these laws and to oppose these um, um, the the failures really. Um, so I mean, it is from an Islamic perspective, the Islam. I mean, we see in the very word of Islam, it's about uh, peace, it's about security, it's about love. Where this is, where Islam has been um, looked down upon, where people have painted this image that Islam is is a backward religion, and isn't that a tragedy? You know, the uh, the religion which uh, actually presents all the solutions, yeah, um, has not been uh, is is uh, is condemned or or is. Um, uh, is prejudiced against um, yeah. in the West and in the East, in the, even in the Muslim world, you see, uh, you know, the true spirit missing. Yeah, I mean, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that a person should desire for others whatever he desires for himself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is a timeless principle, which is so important and so needed today. That we desire for others what we desire for ourselves. We, if we hmm. want ourselves to be successful, we want to be earning, uh, uh, I mean, a, a good salary, a good pay. Um, we want to be living comfortably. Why can't we desire this for others? Exactly. What's, what's, why can't we? Uh, why, why, why can't the rest of our society also live comfortably? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. does it have to be just me? If every person were just to think about that, yeah. I, you know, I think that would be a great basis for yeah, building just this one society. simple rule: that desire for mm-hmm. your others what you desire for yourself. Exactly. Brilliant, uh, Imam Khalid. Yeah, on on those uh, wise words, um, uh, let's close this discussion on the first topic, which is about the participation of women of color in the workplace. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will delve right into the uh, into the second topic, which is about the correct response to blasphemy. Again, a very very important topic, something which is hotly uh, debated within the Muslim world as well as in the West. Um, there have been all sorts of different responses uh, dating back to the late 80s when uh, Salman Rushdie's book um, came out, The Satanic Verses, uh, as well as, uh, you know, then there was uh, in recent um, years, there's been this controversy about Danish, car- Danish cartoons and, uh, and whatnot. So let's talk about what is the Islamic, the correct, the right response to blasphemy. A lot um, coming up on that topic right after this break. Please do join us in this discussion by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven. And you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Our jihad is not a jihad of swords, guns, or bombs. Our jihad is not a jihad of cruelty, brutality, and injustice. Rather, our jihad is of love, mercy, and compassion. Our jihad is of tolerance, justice, and human sympathy. Our jihad is to fulfill the rights of God Almighty and of His creation. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Good morning, Islam alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. We, you're joined here with myself, Tahir Khalid, and Daniel Zia. Uh, in the first hour, we spoke about women of color um, in the workplace, and particularly the aspects of uh, discrimination. Um, and how they're not able to live up to their true potential because of the discrimination that they're facing in in this society. Um, in this second hour, um, for the remainder of the show, we'll be talking about another very important, but uh, an, an important topic, but maybe something which in in this society over here in the UK, we don't really talk about this. Um, and why we don't talk about this is a question that I'm posing out to to our our listeners you can call us uh, to talk about this uh, the number is 0208687 the the topic which we're talking about now is the right response to blasphemy and um, looking at it from an, an angle of of and, and 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 focusing on 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 a few cases which have happened um over the past few weeks and months um around the world where people have been attacked because of blasphemy um and what the right response to this is now in, in recently in Nigeria for example it's seen an increase in mob violence some of which have been in relation to blasphemy uh, recently, a man was killed while he was in a dispute with a, with a Muslim cleric, and a Christian lady was also killed while accused of blasphemy. And this continuous violence has created divisions among Christians and Muslims in in different regions. And it begs the question: What is the true Islamic response to blasphemy? Now, focusing back onto this this issue in Nigeria. Um, in one report, Nigerian police say that a, ma- a mob burned a man to death over a, over a row with a with a Muslim cleric, and uh, eyewitnesses say that the row was over an alleged blasphemous remark, which initiated the response of the mob supporting the cleric. Now, the Abuja victim, Usman, uh, Ahmed Usman, was a member of a local vigilante group, and police found him at the scene with severe burns and took him to hospital, but he died because of his injuries. Uh, it was reported by a BBC Abuja reporter that there appears to be a rise in mob violence, particularly in Nigeria, but in other places as well, where when we're looking at, this, at the blasphemy cases as well. 
for example um um there was um uh, there was another case which was caused by an alleged blasphemy or fake news disinformation which was widely shared on social media um after the killing of Deborah Samuel who was a christian in the northern city of of Sokoto in Nigeria uh, and two days after the killing a peaceful protest in Sokoto turned violent with the demands for the release of the suspected killers of Miss Samuel now a war of words erupted on twitter and facebook between some muslims and christians with each side accused accusing the other of intolerance and extremism we have then had multiple multiple fake pictures videos and posts which have been shared by social media users to incite violence and cause further damage and division in the country and many of the fake stories are accompanied by comments on why nigeria should be divided between the predominantly muslim north and christian south and like this there's been another a number of other cases as well and uh, and again the question and the topic again which we want the angle which we want to discuss it from is how blasphemy of course is defined as the the act of insulting or showing contempt disrespect or lack of reverence for god on object considered as sacred some religions consider blasphemy to be a religious crime the word has been originated from the greek word blasphemia uh, and in english blasphemy denotes any utterance that insults god christ Allah or Muhammad and gives deeply felt offense to their followers in in the US and in uh, in several states in the US and here in the UK as well blasphemy is a criminal offense and in Islamic countries generally no distinction is made between blasphemy and heresy so that any perceived rejection of the prophet or his message is regarded as blasphemous so then that begs the question is there a lack of integration is there a lack of understanding in our society which has caused this strife between different faiths where they are now accusing one another disrespecting one another really is there a lack of disrespect in our society a lack of uh, really um integrity uh, a lack of harmony a lack of an understanding for one another Again, you can call us on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight to talk about this. We're going to our first guest for this particular topic, Rachel Taggart Ryan, uh, who's a senior campaigns officer at Humanist International. Rachel, good morning. Peace be upon you, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to have you I here with us. Um, I'm campaigns officer for Humanist UK. Apologies, not Humanist International, Humanist UK. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Humanist UK uh, and the work that you're doing? So, um, one of our key campaigns is to repeal blasphemy laws um, in the UK, and we succeeded in uh, 2008 and 2009 to repeal the blasphemy law in England and Wales. Um, we've part of the International End Blasphemy Laws campaign, um, which has seen 10 countries in the last five years repeal their laws from the statute books. And I'm currently leading a campaign to repeal the blasphemy laws in Northern Ireland, which are the only part of the UK still to maintain blasphemy laws. Um, the main reason we work both in the UK and internationally is that fundamentally blasphemy laws are a violation of the right to freedom of religion or belief. Um, as well as the right to freedom of expression. And far from protecting uh, adherence to a particular religion from 
any sort of harm. What they actually do is they are used to marginalise and harass and victimise those from minority groups. And we've seen that, I mean, you, you described quite well um, what's happening in Nigeria, where there's been an upsurge in violence uh, surrounding accusations of blasphemy. But we now currently have uh, 12 countries around the world where blasphemy is a capital offence. Um, and that's blasphemy or apostasy. So quite often the two are, as you mentioned, are um, sort of confused, conflated together. So merely, you know, declaring yourself an apostate that you're leaving a particular religion um, can lead to, you know, prosecution all the way up to death penalty um, under under blasphemy laws. But we're um, we have actually seen some progress. As I said, ten countries. Actually, 10 countries where they're not often prosecuted have repealed their laws in the last five years. Um, and actually, the Sudan in 2020 repealed the death penalty, and then eventually the whole um, crime of apostasy is no longer on the statute books in the Sudan. So there has been a lot of progress. But um, fundamentally, we are seeing in countries where blasphemy laws are prosecuted uh, an upsurge in violent attacks and vigilante violence against those accused. So, Rachel, you mentioned that uh, within the UK, Northern Ireland still has uh, blasphemy laws on their books. What does the law state and what's the punishment? Uh, the punishment in theory is imprisonment and a fine. Uh, it exists both in the common law of Northern Ireland and also in several statutes. Um, these are the same laws that were repealed in England and Wales, but not in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's been a long time since they've been prosecuted in Northern Ireland, but as we've seen both in the Republic and in Denmark in recent years, even such blasphemy uh, laws that remain on the books can be revived and used to prosecute. Uh, in theory, the blasphemy laws in Northern Ireland are Christian-Pacific, um, but we've seen in... <laughs> Basically, there's been cases in the European Court of Human Rights where blasphemy laws have been allowed to remain on statute. So it is the case that we can't rely on the European Convention of Human Rights to essentially strike down these laws. We need each country individually to repeal them. Right. So, so the the law is is the law uh, um, then that you you cannot blaspheme against uh, God and Christ, um, or is that something else in Northern Ireland specifically? In Northern Ireland, uh, the blasphemy laws uh, specifically reference Christians, so in that way they are discriminatory. Um, they're not in line with uh, our equality or hate crime laws, um, but they specifically protect Christianity from criticism, mm. not necessarily hate, or because you know we have a very separate um, set of laws that are unconnected that protect people from hate um, and incitement to violence which is very separate from blasphemy laws, which protect uh, religious beliefs specifically and protect religious beliefs from legitimate criticism and legitimate uh, raising of counterpoints. And in that respect, they only target those who are from minority groups or have religious dissent rather than protecting believers um, themselves. Hmm. Well, what's your, uh, what's your take? Uh, or what are your thoughts on... Uh, uh, on, on generally uh, upsetting people or, uh, of other faith or having, um, uh, you know, anything which uh, uh, which which causes offence to 
uh, to people of another faith. You know, that could be Catholics versus um, Protestants, or that could be, uh, you know, anybody against the Muslims or anybody else. I think shielding religion from criticism cannot be regarded as a social good. So criticism, mm. which is false, can be tested and met with legitimate counter-arguments, whilst criticism, which is true, uh, should be heard for the sake of correcting errors. So in some cases... If I can interrupt, Rachel, because this is this is a really important point, and I and I to, you know I'm with you on uh, on this, and uh, and and you know the the Islamic position is actually uh, quite similar. Just to just to make sure that we're on the same page on this one, but I you know I'm trying to um, uh, to make the point that, and I fully agree that criticism, yes, but mocking somebody. So you know while you have the right to criticize me uh, or 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 my station. And I may have I have the right to disagree with you, or you know even criticize your position. That's one thing. But do I have the right to mock at you? Uh, yes, you do. I mean, it's not for me to determine. You know how. And that's not offensive. That's is is that right? I mean, how how can you build a a, a just fair? Um, and um, respectful. respectful society in 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 that uh, in that Malay. Well, because criticism can take many forms and many legitimate forms, and that can include ridicule, it can include satire, it can include many things which are strength and which offence. And sometimes, actually, offence is necessary. I mean, I believe sometimes you need to offend people to actually show that the beliefs you believe may be wrong or have morally bad implications, and. Actually, offence is not a harm. You're not harmed by offence. Um, and offence is a legitimate part of freedom of expression. Now, you might not like what other people have to say, mm. but you do have to respect the right for them to say it. I mean, I mean I'm dredging up a very a fundamental principle we often talk about in Voltaire. You might not like what I have to say, but, you mm. know, I'll defend you with your right to say it. Right. Um, in some cases, criticism helps religious thinkers improve theology. In more substantive cases, criticism is essential in shedding light on immoral and unlawful practices that can be carried out in the name of religion or in the name of many other different beliefs. So let um, me ask you this, Rachel. Um, mm -hmm. If criticism is okay, and, and, and you're saying that even causing offence is okay, what is your position on the laws carried in, um, in the books of many European states where criticising the Holocaust is a crime. Uh, in many countries, denial of the Holocaust is a crime. That's not the case in the UK. Hmm. Um, I do not think that um, having it as a crime on the statute books is actually a good thing. I think one of the best ways of countering the anti-Holocaust narrative and those who deny it for anti-Semitic reasons and wish to do harm to uh, Jewish communities uh, in Europe and around the world is actually to counter those arguments uh, in a free field because they are poorly historically um, substantiated, um, uh, poor arguments. Um, and with the duty of historians is to be able to counter those. And I think, you know, one of the best ways of being able to do that is to be able to write freely and to counter those arguments in an open uh, field of argument. So I personally don't think that restricting the publication of those... And I mean, there's a famous case in the UK of a... Um, 
of a, a particular Holocaust denial book, which the publishers, Penguin, actually took to court to um, pull apart and mm. show that it was unsubstantiated. And that, I think, did actually more... His publication and the outcry against it did a lot more to um, counter um, Holocaust denial than has been achieved in other nations where they do have, um, mm. you know, criminal bans on its publication. But then, I Caroline, what, what, what would you say to, to many Jews, you know, some of them might be listening to this today as well, who would say that, you know, it causes them offence? Uh, and it causes them pain when when somebody denies uh, Holocaust. And I think the most effective way um, of countering that is to be able to people to say people to pull apart those arguments to examine them critically. Um, and ultimately, offence is not a harm. Offence is sometimes a necessary evil in order to be able to expose bad ideas and bad practices. Um, and I think actually one of the most effective means of countering those narratives has been addressing them in the open and exposing them for the lies and the anti-Semitism that exists beneath them. I feel the bans um, in other countries sometimes shield um, Holocaust deniers from proper examination and from proper exposure to, um, to critical thinking, critical reason. So I again, I, I don't like what they say but I feel the best way to counter them and to take away their power is for them to be shown um, to be to be unsubstantiated and to be liars. Um, and I feel that's, that is honestly the best way in which we've been able to counter these narratives. I feel banning them often leads to them developing or able to develop kind of cult status or cult followings, which have been increasingly harmful. Whereas I think in the UK, Holocaust denial has generally been countered by people exposing them. Rachel, coming back to our, our main discussion on, on, on blasphemy and offending someone, do you think it requires or there is a need now to maybe adjust the laws so that it can create a more peaceful, a more respectful society? I think so. I think we still have 12 countries where blasphemy or apostasy is a is a crime punishable by death. And having these laws on the statute books um, gives rise or legitimacy to mob violence, to vigilante violence. And I think repealing them from the statute books um, will go a long way in delegitimizing acts of violence against those accused of blasphemy and in some countries such as Pakistan um, where you know we've seen in over the last six months about four or five uh, murders related to blasphemy allegations someone actually you know by by police themselves that were uh, designated to protect individuals accused um, I think what we need to do is we're not only repeal a statute that exists and gives sort of uh, legitimacy to these violence, but also to call out those leaders um, who are, you know, inciting violence um, in the name of blasphemy. And I think those two together, and we've seen some progress. We've seen progress in the Sudan, which um, in the last few years has repealed its apostasy, which carried the death penalty. Um, and that was part of a wave of many reforms which have made aimed at making the Sudan a more prosperous and peaceful country and I hope that will continue. But I mean Rachel, I mean if we I mean of course it's it's important that we 
we um, we adjust these laws, we repeal them, and we allow people to have this freedom of choice, freedom to say what they want, freedom of of religion, really. Um, but then it doesn't it go against um, what you said earlier about the right to offend, then because with that, then it will cause more of these. Um, I mean, in these places like Pakistan, for example, where um, a Muslim isn't safe, a Christian isn't safe, a Hindu isn't safe. Um, if if this issue or if this aspect of being having the right to offend one another in such a society where even now um, it's it's very difficult to just have your to to basically just profess your faith. Wouldn't that cause more issues for them if they were if they were allowed to offend one another? No, I mean paradoxically, blasphemy laws do not protect the rights of the majority. They what they are actually used for is to marginalise and harass minority groups, and they give rise to um, legitimate legitimation of violence and accusations against minority groups and preventing those from practising their religious beliefs. And we see that hugely in, in Pakistan at the moment, where the largest group that are targeted by blasphemy laws are Christians and Ahmadi Muslims. Um, so it's not restricting offence does not protect people from offence. It is used primarily as a means of repressing minority groups. And that has been recognised. Um, you know, there's been many comments by the UN Special Rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief that actually these laws are harmful in that way. They do not protect believers um, from harm. They cause harm to minority believers. Mm. Um Humanist International, they themselves have been accused of blasphemy when appealing against such laws. How has this impacted the works and, com- and campaigns run by Humanist International? Um, well, to be honest, we've not really been accused of, of blasphemy and repealing these laws because we are operating in a human rights framework. Um, you know, we're working within... Um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which has made it very clear that blasphemy, restrictions on blasphemy are a human rights violation, both of freedom of religion and also freedom of expression. Um, But what we have been able to do, I think, is very successfully repeal blasphemy laws in many European countries, also Canada and New Zealand, where they remained on the books. And a lot of that is actually about standing in solidarity with the victims of blasphemy in countries where these laws are used regularly to prosecute. Um, And also not giving those countries um, the shield of saying, you know, Western countries still have these equivalent laws. Um, So that's one of the main reasons that we're you know, we want to repeal the blasphemy laws where they exist still in the UK, and that's only in Northern Ireland now, is because it is a mark of solidarity um, with those who do face, you know, extreme violence, uh, the threat of murder, a very brutal attack because of these laws. Mm. Um, and it's not, I mean, in terms of changing our way of operating, I don't think it has. Um, we, we very much work within human rights um, organisations. We work at the UN. We work within um, 
national legislatures to campaign for these these necessary repeals. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that it's it's hindered or changed the way we've approached this. That we're working very much within a human rights framework. Rachel Taggart Ryan, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate um, um, uh, it, uh, really appreciate you taking all the tough questions and answering um, uh, everything that we had to ask. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So that was uh, Rachel Daggett Ryan, uh, who is the campaign's officer at Humanist UK, uh, talking to us earlier. Right. Um, um, earlier on, we also spoke to Mr. Azar Hussain, who is an attorney from Texas, currently serving as vice president and assistant general secretary, uh, ge- assistant general counsel for JP Morgan Chase. Let's listen in to what he had to say. Azir Hussain is an attorney from Texas currently serving as Vice President and Assistant General Counsel for J.P. Morgan Chase. Prior to working in finance, he was Assistant General Counsel for the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, and prior to that, he was an Assistant City Attorney for the City of Dallas, Texas, and a former criminal prosecutor in Hunt County, Texas. Um, Aslam alaikum, and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio Breakfast Show. Walaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us about some of the blasphemy laws that exist today around the world? Of course. So blasphemy laws globally are not uncommon. Um, we see them in, I think it's something like 40% of all the countries on, on, on earth have some type of a blasphemy law. So, we, But predominantly where we see them being used are uh, a lot of countries that are uh, primarily uh, Muslim countries. So, for example, Pakistan, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, Saudi Arabia. But then also some countries like India also have uh, a blasphemy law that regularly gets used as well. Um, oddly enough, the United Kingdom also has a uh, blasphemy law that's still on the books. Um, and then even in the United States, strangely enough, there are several states that still have blasphemy laws. Okay, um, and can you tell us about some of these and why they could be problematic? Of course. So the issue with blasphemy laws are often how they're applied. So a lot of them are written vague for the most part. They, they, they try not to, because around the time that a lot of uh, these countries, especially some of the newer countries, their constitutions were made, they tried to embody a sense of uh, religious freedom, and particularly like, you know, Pakistan is a great example. They, you know, the, the idea was like, okay, well, we're going to support, we're going to be an Islamic Republic, but still support minority rights and religious freedoms. So these laws were drafted as vague, but at the end of the day, the way that they are applied is extremely discriminatory. Uh, so, for example, in Pakistan, the, the, it's a prohibition to use de, uh, derogatory remarks in respect of holy personages. Uh, and it's also uh, an offense to injure or defile a place of worship with the intent to insult the religion of any class. So when you look at those, on their face, they're neutral. But when you go and look at how they're applied, they're most commonly applied to Christians, to Shias, uh, and obviously to Amdis. So it's rarely, if ever, used against Muslims who turn around and uh, say derogatory things toward other minority groups. And what it, in effect, turns into is a means of 
state-sanctioned oppression against those same minority groups. A great example is Indonesia. The, the, they have a blast, their, their anti-blasphemy law recognizes only six religions, Islam, Protestant Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and I think Catholicism. So that doesn't even include like the Eastern Orthodox or Coptic Christian churches, and it doesn't include Judaism. So, uh, and then not to mention all the world religions in um, uh, uh, like the continent of Africa. Hundreds of religions, uh, many of them ancient, going back, you know, centuries and millennia, and those would not be recognized in Indonesia as official religions. So your anti-blasphemy law basically means that if one of those people says anything what, you know, the state would deem as negative against one of those six religions, they would, uh, you would be punished for it. Um, and the same thing in Egypt, uh, their, their anti-blasphemy law, again, on its face, doesn't really appear to be um, aimed at protecting one religion or another. Um, it, it basically prohibits you from defaming any, or ridiculing or insulting a heavenly religion. So when you look at that, uh, heavenly religion could be any religion that believes that heaven exists. So then you go to all the religions that don't, like Buddhism, Confucianism, um, I mean, Hinduism, in a sense, does, but not to this, not, it's not the same extent or to the same degree that Muslims do. Um, and so, again, when you, when you look at that and you apply it, what it ends up turning into is a means for the state to enforce Islam, or in, in any instance, the religion that, that they believe is the correct state-sanctioned religion, it's a means to enforce it on a state level. So that was uh, Mr. Azar Hussain, who is the attorney from Texas, uh, currently service, uh, currently serving as Vice President and Assistant General Counsel for J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, Imam Khalid, this is a uh, this is a hugely important debate and discussion, which uh, yeah. is taking place both in the West and the East, uh, both in the Christian world, as we just discussed, as well as in the uh, in the Muslim world. Um, we promised our listeners we will give them the correct and true Islamic perspective on blasphemy when we started off this discussion. So what is the, the true Islamic teaching around blasphemy? Is there punishment in Islam for blasphemy, number one, and apostasy? We have to, for, to understand this, we have to come to to those who really came with the came with the faiths. And those are the prophets. The prophets came... They taught their faith. They taught the faith which God Almighty had revealed to them, really. And the Holy Quran, for example, it points out very clearly that all prophets and messengers of God, they were persecuted. They were harmed, they were abused, they were mocked, not only during their lifetime, lifetime but also after their death. Um, in the Holy Quran, in one place, chapter 36, verse 31, it states that, Alas for my servants, there comes not a messenger to them, but they mock at him. Then we sent again in chapter 23 verse 45 that we sent our messengers one after another. Every time they came to a people, um, their messenger, they treated him as a liar. Then we have Noah, Abraham, Prophet Lot, Prophet Saleh, Prophet Shuaib, Moses, Jesus, peace be upon them all. Just to name a few, they were all mocked and blasphemed by their enemies and opponents. So how did the prophets react? To blasphemy, they, these were obviously the ones who came with the law. They came with this faith, really. Mm. 
and when they were and when they were um really discriminated they were mocked they were abused mm. we have to see what their reaction was like so we can learn from that because that's the example that we have to follow if you if it's a, if you're a christian mm. and someone is mocking your mm. faith you have to see what was the reaction of jesus mm. when he was mocked if mm. you're a jew and uh, a jew, i mean we, we spoke about the holocaust earlier mm. on mm. if someone's in denial of that mm. and if someone's mocking the jewish faith and the jewish people mm. What was what was Prophet Moses' reaction? What was Prophet Jesus' reaction? He was obviously a Jew as well. And and if I can add, what was uh, Prophet Muhammad, maybe blessings of Allah be upon him? What was his reaction when he was mocked at? Yeah, I mean this is again very important question. The now did so again the question that we've we're, we're asking is how did they react? Hmm. Did the prophets did they punish blasphemy? Did hmm. they punish those who blasphemed? Um, and what was the end of those those mockers and blasphemers? The Holy Quran clearly speaks about the treatment of those mockers and enemies of God's prophets, and states that in chapter thirteen, verse thirty-three, and surely messengers have been mocked at before before thee, mocked at before thee, but I granted respite to those who disbelieved. Then I seized them, and how was then my punishment? So again, that's God Almighty mm-hmm. saying He's the one who punishes. Then chapter six, verse thirty-five. And messengers indeed have been rejected before thee, but notwithstanding their rejection and persecution, they remained patient until our help came. There is none that can change the words of Allah. So again, it shows that it was God Almighty who was the one who can judge them and punish them, not the Prophet themselves. If we look at what Our Holiness, the fifth Caliph of the the Amdi Muslim community, has stated, and he was talking about this um, in Denmark uh, about the about blasphemy laws mm-hmm. um, and people who have been abused, holy personages who are being abused, right. what does the Quran say? Mm-hmm. He states that Allah the Almighty is the one who established and protects the respect and honor of His prophets and all that is sacred. The worldly laws make no difference to that. However, we must draw the attention of people towards what is real freedom. Having freedom does not allow you to start stealing money from the peop- from the pockets of people. Freedom does not mean you can start to break into people's houses and loot their property. It is not absolute. So in order to establish peace, every citizen should be required to take care of the feelings of others. Hmm. In a society where people's feelings are cared for, automatically there will be an atmosphere of peace that exists and develops when an atmosphere of peace and brotherhood is established people will not play with the feelings of others this goes against the, mm-hmm. this goes against what our first guest was saying as well okay. that there should be freedom but you should be able and allowed to offend one another or right. mock one another mm-hmm. he further states that allah the almighty has not established any punishment for blasphemy however god almighty does say that you should live as brothers Mm. And take care of each other's feelings. Mm. If members of society were to act upon this fundamental principle, mm. then all other problems would be resolved. Society should recognize the basic principle that people should not only focus upon striving to attain their own rights, rather they should fulfill their obligations towards others too. Every citizen should realize this. This is the teaching that religion gives us. Then the question arises: What is the punishment? Mm. There is no punishment for apostasy in mm. Islam. This is for apostasy. In fact, the Holy Quran stresses kindness and tolerance in matters of faith. The perfect example being the verse of the Holy Quran: "There should be no compulsion in religion." Mm. In chapter mm. two, verse two hundred and fifty-seven, 
and Islam stresses the freedom for freedom of religion. In chapter 109, God Almighty states, uh, it states, for you your religion, for me my religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is not a single example of a punishment for punishment for apostasy from the life of the Holy Prophet, peace mm-hmm. and blessings be upon him. Absolutely. Coming to another aspect as well, um, if we look at some of the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Um, now we have uh, one person, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul. He was known as the chief of the hypocrites. Right. And he continuously abused the Holy Prophet, right. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and yeah. opposed him severely in mm. Medina. When he passed away, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he stood to offer his funeral prayers. But he was asked by one of his companions, O Allah's Apostle, do you offer the prayer for this man, although he said such and such mm. on such and such day? Mm. And that he is a hypocrite. The Holy Prophet, he ignored his statements and continued to offer the funeral prayer of the dead man. And this shows that he never ordered any punishment for anyone who insulted or abused him mm. um, or God Almighty. Mm. On the contrary, he went to pray for them that they may be guided. Um, and I mean, there's there's much more which has been which has been talk- spoken about this as well mm. um, in, 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 in a number of books. One book is by the fourth caliph of the Abadi Muslim community, Murder in the Name of, of Allah. Mm. Um, then... I mean, we have um, we have the example um, where in in the Holy Quran, God Almighty states in chapter six, verse sixty nine, um, about the foul language, mm. about abusing someone. Um, and uh, yes, Islam advises to keep away from such people. Mm. The Quran says that when you see those who trifle with our signs. Then turn, then then turn thou away from them until then engage until they engage in a discourse other than that. Right. And if Satan cause thee to forget, then sit not after recollection with the unjust people. So those people who are abusing you, those people who are mocking you, Just move away from them. Move yeah. away from them. Exactly. And I mean, one fundamental in, injunction of the Holy Quran is to of the Holy Prophet as well, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is to not mock. People of other faiths mm. to not abuse just, just basic human decency. Exactly. So mm. the Quran says that if you, mm. if you mock them, if you abuse mm. them, they will abuse you in return. Right. They will offend you in mm. return, and and this is a continuous cycle. Right. So until this, we we put the nip in the bud that mm. we we understand that there needs to be respect in society. There right. needs to be tolerance in society. Right. Yes, you can criticize, mm. but to offend. Mm. Will cause harm. Will hurt their feelings. It always does, yeah. And yeah. and in return, I mean, yeah, the example that I can remember, which uh, the fifth head of the Amdiya Muslim Community, the current head, Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed, I think, gave um, uh, back in Holland, I think, when he was addressing members of Parliament there, was that, you know, would you, would you, if you look living in a family, if you're together in a household, would you offend your wife? Would you offend your partner? Would you offend your brother or your sister? Uh, would you mock at them? If you wouldn't do that. If you would take care of their feelings and um, account for what they like and don't like, and and that's what you do, and that's what you consider as important to build a family, and uh, and live uh, and 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 build a harmonious family and a successful family, then you know family is just a small unit of the overall society. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you respect that, and if you feel offence mm. when someone. Mocks you and laughs at you, or mm. really ridicules 
or offends you really with mm. with someone of your close family then it's the same with religion mm. it's the same with those that you that those those personages that you love whether that is god almighty whether mm. that is the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him or whether that is jesus moses abraham all of the prophets peace be upon them all right. you they until we have um that basic understanding and respect for one mm. another we can't live in a peaceful society if you look at one last example is the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him he governed a society in medina of muslims christians and jews mm. living together peacefully mm. harmoniously mm. for a certain time um and that was the best example and they they unanimously decided that he is the best person to to govern us mm. because of that freedom because of that 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 unity that islam provides absolutely and on that note um uh, uh brings that brings us to the end of today's program thank you very much uh, for joining us today I must thank our producers our researchers and the tech team here's the news